You're listening to the Super Talk podcast, produced by the Australian Institute of Superannuation Trustees, shaping profit to member super. Hello and welcome to Super Talk. My name is Gary West and I'm the Senior Manager, Media and Communications with AIST. I'm joined by Jared Noonan. Jared has more than 40 years experience in the media at the Australian Financial Review, where he was editor for five years, and the Sydney Morning Herald. He is a winner of a Walkley Award in journalism. He was formerly the chair of Media Super, president of AIST and the Australian Council of Superannuation Investors, and a member of the board of the federal government's advisory group, Innovation Australia. Today, we'll be discussing the equal representation governance model on profit to member superannuation fund boards, super investment, how it has evolved and why profit to member funds have outperformed, how these funds have held companies to account for their performance and fees in the super industry. Jared, thanks for joining us. Firstly, can you discuss the origins and importance of the equal representation governance model that has been the hallmark of profit to member fund boards since super became compulsory 30 years ago. Well, thanks, Gary. Um, look, just backtracking a, little, a fraction, um, the very first 3% superannuation was won as a result of a lot of industrial action. It wasn't really legislated, first of all. And as a result of that, we needed to put this money somewhere. We'd won this money in the field, as it were, a whole lot of industries had won this money. And so we thought, well, how are we going to, what do we do with this money? It's, it has to be kept for you know, a long, long period of time, and in some cases, 30 or 40 years. So we decided, well, we better set up a, a governance structure for this. And it was primarily the unions involved in this, the major unions that belong to the ACTU. But there were some employer organisations that were quite um, responsive to this idea. There were many others that were not, but there were a number that were. So we created this this model, which which had. So we, we went around the world. The, the ACTU went and did a, a, a lengthy investigation into this. We had a look at various models of governance of, of ent entities, and one of the ones that was attractive was the, the the way that the German industry runs their major companies. So they have a board, but they also have a supervisory board, and over the top of that super, that supervisory board has representatives from unions and also from the company itself on that on that supervisory board. So we, we use that model as the model to, to, to set up uh, industry funds across each of the various industries. So that was really how the idea came about. It was driven by the unions, but we, we did get a whole lot of um, essentially willing employer representatives who were prepared to, who, who saw the benefit of this actually, and, who decided that um, they'd be part of it as well. So we ended up with an equal number of uh, representatives nominated by unions and an equal number of representatives uh, nominated by employers. And that was broadly speaking, the German um, governance model that they use in the, in the, in the, in the large um, corporations. So that's where it came from. Um, look, it, it evolved over time. There was a bit of pressure to change um, the um, in, in more recent years, it, it changed that model to having a number of so-called independent directors on, on the boards of superannuation funds. We always argued that as fiduciaries, we were independent. We're all, we, we made a, a 
you know, a, a commitment to, to act in the interest of best interest of members. And so all of us acted independently. Um, so over time, there's been a few added to it, but broadly speaking, the model of equal representation has been the one that stayed and it's been fantastically successful. People around the world, I go to, I have actually been to a number of international conferences and invariably someone at the conference from the conference floor said, could the Australian delegate please explain again exactly how you did this? And that's how we did it. From your experience, how well do employee and employer representatives work together on these boards in the best interests of members? Well, look, it's a, it's a, it was one thing that we always wondered about, but as it happens, I've, I've been on these boards for the best part of three decades, uh, and there's been terrific um, uh, cooperation between the employer representatives and union representatives, or employee representatives, member representatives. Um, over all of that time, I've never, I've never seen anything um, divide along employer and employee lines as far as decision-making is concerned. And the reason is that we're fiduciaries. We understood our, our task and our responsibility, both sides. Um, there was, look, there was sometimes a little bit of the natural tension that occurs in the industrial relations world. And so in one sense, we've kind of, uh, we adopted that as one of the ways of what was it um, Don Chip used to say when he set up one of the political parties, keeping the bastards honest. So we kept each other honest by making sure that we had the interest of our members at heart always and not the interest of the organisations that were sponsoring us in. So um, it, it's worked remarkably well. I mean, the most famous example of this was in the, in the bitter waterfront dispute in the there was, you know, there were balaclavas and dogs on the waterfront and so on. But actually, at night, John Coombs from the from the Maritime Union and um, Chris Corrigan, who ran the company that was involved in the you know, the massive dispute, were also directors on the industry fund, which in those days was called Surf. And so, in the evening times, they used to have these meetings where all of the stuff that had gone on during the day, and the, you know, the dogs and the TV coverage and the bitter dispute was left, as, left aside at the door. In they went and they, they made sure that the interests of waterside workers, as far as their superannuation was concerned, was kept paramount. And they, they weren't necessarily great friends, but they were very, very cooperative in that process. So, I mean, that's the most ex obvious example of how things can work, even though there might be you know, disputes elsewhere. But in general terms, my experience has been that um, the, the directors of each of the industry funds from either side have acted absolute in the interest of members. As I say, I've been involved in it for nearly 30 years. There hasn't been a single vote in all of that time on my fund, which was originally Just Super and more recently Media Super, where, where the, the vote um, divided down employer-employee lines, never. That um, previous example um, was a fascinating insight into how the boards operate. Um, turning to the next question, what were your initial impressions of the superannuation industry when you first became involved, particularly the jargon surrounding it, and how did you manage to unravel it? Right. Well, look, that's right. Um, when I was very first uh, chair of what was then Just Super, the predecessor to Media Super, I was actually the editor of the Financial Review, which is you know the old rule that if you want to get a job done, get a, give it to a busy person. Um, so I sat there with as this looking at this amount of money that was you know, sent to me to be an incredible amount of money, $6 million of monies that journalists had. Tried. Imagine allowing journalists out there with $6 million. Um, and 
So I thought, well, how do we do this? So I went to people who operated in the financial services industry and they all said, oh, look, very, very complicated. Oh, look, this is hard work. You know, you, you, you need to have a, you know, basically a, 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 an insider's understanding of how this all worked. And I said, well, I'm a journalist. Um, just explain to me what it is about superannuation or investing that's so complicated. Oh, well, you know, kind of, there's all these. So I said, no, let's just start. So let's start talking through the terms. And so the, the first term was preservation. I remember, was, oh, preservation, that sounds complicated. Tell me about that. Blah, blah, blah. They explained how preservation worked. But still, it's very complicated, Jared. You, you know, you won't be able to get hold of this. Well, I think I've worked out preservation so far. So what about some other terms? Oh, well, there's vesting. Oh, yeah. What's vesting? So, and we went through it. And 10 terms later, I got to the end of it and said, that actually isn't all that complicated, you know. Oh, yes, Jared, but you, you, you've got to understand that you really need to be, and what they were really saying is you need to be the high priests of finance to do this. And you know what? You didn't need to be. You need to bring common sense, a good governance structure, people who are prepared to ask simple questions, uh, and, um, and the jargon grows, but you always have to ask and on the boards that I've been on and the investment communities where I've been on, where you've had people from the investment community giving you advice, the best directors are those that keep on saying, I don't understand what you're talking about, start again. So in other words, I was always looking when I was chairing Media Super for directors who were wise people, not necessarily people who had specific knowledge of a particular area of investments. I mean, I had obviously with the financial review and you and I worked together once a long time ago, Gary, at the financial review, you were a, a, a very eminent journalist working with us in those days. Um, uh, we, our job was to understand things. And that's what, that's what we did. And you do that by asking questions and occasionally being a bit silly, being feeling a bit silly to ask these dumb questions. But you know what? The end result has been a spectacular outperformance. Indeed. What do you believe has been at the heart of the ability of profit to member fund profit to member funds to outperform for profit retail funds over the long term? Well, okay. So we, we were, you know, profit to members or what used to be called not for profit. So there's probably um, a small element that uh, went to uh, the our performance because we weren't paying shareholders money, we were giving money back to our members. But our outperformance over a long period was something in the order of uh, 2% every single year. So 200 basis points, as they call it in the, in the finance world. I estimate that about a quarter of that was because we were not-for-profit or profit to members. The other three quarters of that, the other 1.5%, um, was decisions that the boards themselves made about where we invested money. Because I remember these discussions as though they were yesterday. We sat there and thought, well, here we are. We, we've got all this money to invest. What do we do with the money? Well, uh, we invest in what other pension funds do around the world, don't we? And we sat back and thought, well, that's pretty dumb, actually. Our members are likely to be in, uh, members of our fund for somewhere between 20, 30, or some, in some cases, 40 years. So why don't we invest in things that have got long maturity? but we get the benefit that flows from um, taking the long position. And so uh, we looked around the world and thought, well, in Europe and the United States, the funds tend to have a 50 fear, like a balanced fund tended to be a half shares and half bonds. But we just looked at bonds and thought, well, we don't actually really need a 
government bonds. Uh, that's because they, they they didn't perform particularly well. They acted as an anchor, but not they weren't very. So we started to look at other sorts of investments, and some of the other investments that the retail funds did not go into um, were things like infrastructure, were things like private equity, and were things like property. Now, AMP is a retail fund, although it originally was a mutual, of course, that's what the AMP stood for. They actually had quite a big position in property, but most of the other retail funds did not have any position in anything other than uh, shares and bonds. And so we made decisions at the board level that we would slowly but surely up our involvement uh, in those other uh, assets like infrastructure. We, we needed to create a structure which was it ended up being an organisation called Industry Funds Management, which the funds owned themselves, which was able to go out and buy big things, you know, buy toll roads and water supply systems and pipelines and airports and ports and so on. Um, but we did that deliberately because that ties your money up for a number of years. For But the return you get from that is consistent and high. And same thing with property. And so eventually most of the industry funds ended up with about 25 to 30% of their total portfolios sitting in those assets, unlisted assets as they would call them. So property, um, uh, infrastructure and also uh, private equity, including some venture capital, although that was actually a, a slightly more difficult part of it. And then for the rest of it, we were investing in shares and to, to some degree bonds. And then we realised that we were starting to get too big for the Australian market, so we had to go offshore. And so we were buying shares offshore as well as holding shares in Australia. The only issue about buying offshore is that, of course, you end up with a thing called um, currency risk. And so you have, you have to really treat currency as another asset. So we were bringing you know, relatively sophisticated um, processes to the table to ensure that what we were investing in was matching what our members life cycle was. And we ended up across the board, pretty much all of us outperforming the retail funds by a factor of 2% every year. That means a hell of a lot of money in, in a member's account when they've gone through 20, 30 or 40 years uh, in the superannuation system. So it proved to be a really good outcome, but it came about not by chance. It came about by people sitting around a table the boards sitting around the table making decisions about what the asset allocation of the fund should be. I think I think you've um, anticipated my next question and in some ways answered it. So maybe there's scope to elaborate a little bit more. And that is, how has the nature of superannuation investments evolved over time, and how can that be linked to the the member first ethos and and the board decisions? Well, that's that's right. I probably have done that. Um, the uh, the long-term horizon is a really important thing. Um, one of the, the subsets of this was, I remember sitting at a, at a board meeting thinking, look, we own BHP shares. And so what are we next going to do? We're going to buy or sell, sit on them or buy and sell them. The, the orthodoxy was, well, you sell them, buy and sell them. So, well, okay, so we sell them. Let's say we sell it to Host Plus, and then Host Plus holds it for a while and they sell it to Hester. And then Hester holds it for a while and they hold, they sell it to Australian Super or predecessor for Australian Super. And then Australian Super holds it for a while and they sell it back to us. And I think, why is that a benefit to our members? That's only a benefit to brokers, actually, who are buying and selling shares. So there was an instinct across our world to say, look, let's 
choose funds, choose um, assets that we, we think are going to be valuable, not just necessarily follow the market. Right? We have to follow the market a bit, but nevertheless, we, we, um, we uh, were avoiding churn, as it were, in shares. But on the other one third of the total portfolio, we were taking really long positions. Now, that, we came under a bit of criticism for that because people said, well, look, how do you value those assets? How do you value a water supply system in London, which is what we did own? Or how do, we, how do you value Manchester Airport or the Indiana toll road in the United States, etc.? So um, there, was, there, there were some issues there about how you do that. But we know that long term, that was always going to be a better outcome for us than simply trading shares. So it was the long horizon and the decision making by the boards to do that, which was the outperformance. That's the key to the outperformance. Tell me about the role of super funds in holding um, companies, publicly listed companies to account for their performance and, and the benefits of this for fund members. Right. Well, you mentioned in the introduction that I, I had been president of the Australian Council of Superannuation Investors. That's been going since 2001. And it was basically the, the superannuation funds got together and said, look, we got to do something about climate change. This is actually serious. But, and we own, a whole, we own all these shares and companies. Um, but these companies are not necessarily acting in the interests of what we think would be our members and also of the general community. You know, so we put together the AXI, the Australian Council of Super Investors, and we slowly but surely engaged with the companies. I remember in the very early days, they wouldn't give us the time of day. Like they wouldn't talk to us. Um, but slowly but surely, they realised that, oh, actually, the superannuation funds now don't own 1% of our total portfolio. They own 3%. Oh, God, it's 5%. Bloody hell, it's now 10%. Um, and at the moment, it's it's closer to 15 to 20%, actually, in, in most listed companies in Australia. So we went to them and said, look, we think that you need to think your way through environmental issues, but also you need to have a think about your, the governance that you have in your own company. You're not sure the, the way you pay your executives and the way your um, uh, audit, or the way your um, remuneration committee is making decisions about um, golden handshakes and, and golden parachutes and so on uh, is the right way of going about it. You've got to act more responsibly than that. And also, You've got to take into account that you have an impact on the community in which you operate, and we want you. We want to show. We want you to show signs that you're doing something about it. And they resented. They resisted it. I must say, but slowly but surely they realised. But we said to them, "Listen, we're the, we're the owners. You're you're the managers of this operation. You're you're the governor. You you govern that company. But we're the owners. We're fiduciary owners of this of these stocks. So we want you to do something about it. And if you don't." will consider voting against your re-election. Now, they definitely did not like that. Um, but that was one of the ways that we had to bring some um, influence to bear on making sure that uh, companies respected that they had a license to operate uh, and within the, within the communities that they were doing and they weren't in a position to be you know, cutting corners. And, and so we, we, we got very heavily involved in the modern the modern slavery legislation to make sure that companies weren't employing people who were down, down you know, in the supply chain who were effect, effectively slaves. Uh, and so there's been quite an active uh, role for the super funds over the past 20 years, mainly through the organisation of the Australian Council for Superannuation Investors. And I think that the end result of that has been far better governance and far better companies and far better um, 
procedures that the, the companies in which we invest. And just finally, the um, flip side of returns to Superfund members are the fees charged. What are your thoughts on the, the level of investment fees in particular and what impact is internalisation of investments having on these fees? That's an excellent question. Um, look, we've wrestled with the issue of fees for a very long time. Uh, we thought during the global financial crisis in 2008 and 2009 that the fund managers and we were I mean, we employed fund managers and many of them did a very good job, but they nevertheless still charged quite excessive fees or quite large, sorry, I should, should say, they quite large fees for what they were doing. And we often thought, look, that's, you know, you're just, you're just getting, you know, money for jam really there. You, the bigger we grow, the more your fee, um, uh, your, your fees grow. Um, so we tried hard during that period of crisis in capitalism really, or in the, in the markets uh, in 2008, 2009 to, put pressure on the, the fund managers to lower their fees. And we didn't have any success at all. None. Amazing, really, when you think about it, because um, we were in the box seat to do something about it. Uh, there are a few organisations, one of them particularly Frontier Investments, uh, and a person called Fiona Trafford-Walker, who might acknowledge her role in doing this, pressured us really hard to see whether we could get the fees down. And we essentially couldn't. And any time we say to a, a fund manager, look, we, you know, we think you're charging too much, you know, we're going to go elsewhere. They say, okay, see you, bye. So it was sort of the wrong way around. So what has inevitably occurred is that in the same way that we got to understand how superannuation worked in the first instance and how to govern it, the funds now increasingly are saying, look, why do we pay so much to fund managers? Why can't we manage the assets ourselves? So you've got funds like Australian Super, which is in the order of $250 billion, like a quarter of a trillion dollars of investments. Now, not all of those investments are being internalised, but a significant number of them are. And similarly at Hester and similarly at, at CBUS, the fund that Media Super has recently merged with, and similarly with you know, Host Plus and so on, they're basically taking them internally. So getting a balance between external fund managers and internally. And so we've got to measure and, and be able to say to the fund managers, look, you don't need, you, you can't charge those sort of prices. We're doing it perfectly well ourselves. So it's not as though we can, you know, we want to do the whole lot of it ourselves. Um, we can get a balance there. Um, but uh, the, I think over time, you'll see the cost of investing slowly but surely drop. And that will include external managers as well. That's all for this episode of Super Talk. Thanks to Jared Noonan. For more episodes of Super Talk and for more information on the work of the Australian Institute of Superannuation Trustees, visit our website at aist.asn.au and don't forget to subscribe to this podcast.